Hello everyone, welcome to another wonderful episode of The Crux, True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Tessa King, and joined by my lovely, lovely sister. <laughs> I'm lovely squared today. Yeah, you weren't lovely last time, but today... Oh, thank you. I'm Casey McIntosh. In 1949, a B-29 went down over the Bermuda Triangle. The 18 crew members would be lost at sea for three to four days before rescue. So this week, things are a little different because I had to do a lot of research based on very old newspaper articles, courtesy of my friend, Alicia George. This story is about her grandfather, William or Bill Costin. So I went through like a hundred news articles and listened to a recording of her grandmother give so a personal account. Did you read all of these, all of these hundreds of articles that you that you that you went through? Oh yeah, I didn't just like look at them. <laughs> yep, that, it's there. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> I mean, more or less, it was the same information. What was interesting was this recording from her grandmother, just because it gave a different perspective of what was reported in the newspaper. And I think it's just a cool story because like Alicia was telling me, you can't find most of this information online. Yeah. Some of it you can find some of these papers scanned in. So anyway, this story might just go away if we didn't talk about it. Think about how many stories are like that. Oh, probably thousands. Yeah. Bummer. Real bummer, Tessa. It is a real bummer. But not for Bill today. (laughs) We're going to tell his story. Tell me the story. Okay, so Corporal William Bill Costin was born in 1929, and he was from Springfield, Missouri. He joined the military right out of high school because he wanted to become a pilot. But around this time, Congress had decided that you have to be 21 to become a pilot. So instead, he joined the ground crew. And he was always and forever disappointed he did not have the chance to become a pilot. This story takes place two years into the service for him, so he was probably about 20 years old. He and his crew were flying on a B-29 from Marchfield, California, to the UK via Bermuda. At the time, there was a hurricane over Bermuda, and all of the navigational gear went out. Hmm, So the crew had no idea where they were. Not a good sign. Yeah, they had a radio, so they were able to call to the Bermuda base, which was Kindley Field, to report the incident. But even there, all the navigation equipment was out entirely. So even though they knew that they were lost above the Bermuda Triangle, they had no idea how to find them. In this recording, Alicia's grandma says, they didn't know where land was. They didn't know which direction was north, south, east, or west. They were just out on the Bermuda Triangle with nothing. So it was scary. Well, also, they were above the Bermuda Triangle. So if something was going to go wrong, this is where it, it was going to be. It would be there. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't the Bermuda Triangle known for all these mysterious yeah, we should incidents? Just, we should do an episode just on the Bermuda Triangle just for fun. Yeah. Well, what if they're not all survivals? That's okay. Okay. Well, we'll circle around to that. So this crew flew around until they ran out of gas, which amounted to flying around for four hours before deciding to land in the hurricane waters. Everything unnecessary was jettisoned from the aircraft, so they just 
tossed everything out that they didn't need and did their best to land. From one of the articles I read in one of these newspapers, one of the men, Wilford B. Jones, which sounds like a very 40s name, (laughs) said, the waves were fully 40 feet in height, but it was impossible for us to judge until we were making the landing. We sat on the floor facing the tail. I put cushions behind my head and back. We descended until we were about 23 feet above the crests of the waves. Then Colonel Grable gave it the power and climbed about 50 feet to avoid a big swell. There was one gentle thud, which seemed to the tail lightly striking the swell's crest. The propellers hit the water, and we felt a second thud. Then the nose went in and threw me back against the crash brace. Then the cockpit was half full with water. I got my first mouthful of water in the airplane when I started to stand up. That's fast. I think everyone else did too. That acted as though somebody fired a gun for a race because the nose must have been gone 15 feet under the surface. Colonel Gable dove out of the window beside him, but his legs caught and his head hung down until the water rose and floated him out. Hmm. Then I dove out. When you said that they were going to land, I was thinking maybe they were landing on land. Well, I think they were hoping to find land in that four hours, but... But they didn't, yeah. So they did their best in landing in the water. Crazy. Did they they have any um, supplies for water? We'll get to it. Okay. So here's some more information from Alicia's grandma. She said that Bill was one of the last men out. He had run back into the plane to grab his camera. (laughs) (laughs) And she said in this recording that she thought that he would maybe make some money off of the pictures. Oh, yeah. I don't know if this is true. Speculation. But what's really cool is that Alicia gave me this camera. And it it was ruined with salt water. So it'd be cool if there was a way to retrieve anything that was on it. That would be so cool. So I'll take a picture of it and put it on Instagram. It's a really cool camera. It's just so crazy to me because he goes back to get his camera. But during this crash... Another man didn't make it out. Mystery what happened to him. And another man drowned trying to get to the raft. So in all this chaos, he's like, maybe I should go get my camera. (laughs) Forget saving other people's lives. Why would you do that? I have memories to keep. (laughs) (laughs) The men struggled to get into the life rafts and dove into them. So to reiterate, the one man was injured badly and disappeared. Nobody knows if he died and was somewhere in the aircraft. And another one drowned trying to get into the lifeboat. Once they're on these lifeboats, the first 24 hours, all of the men experienced terrible nausea, which was caused by swallowing seawater because, once again, they're in the middle of a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And after several days of this, these guys were vomiting blood. Oh. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. They tied their lifeboats together so they wouldn't drift apart. How many lifeboats were there? Two. And there were rafts. They did have a radio, and they took turns trying to send out signals. But unfortunately, during the second night, the radio, which had been roped to the side of one of the rafts, detached and sank. Oh my goodness. Why? So this is one (laughs) one of those stories where it's just like another thing and another thing and another thing. That night, a big swell overturned one of the boats, and some of the bags, food, and other equipment was lost. Oh. How many men were on, in these lifeboats? 
let's see. So I think there are 18 of them. Oh gosh. That's a lot of people. Yes. So their whole crew would have been 20 overall. Yeah. So they're packed in. And Alicia's grandma mentioned that at one point or another, every man was chucked from a boat, but they all managed to get back on and off. So really rough waters. They were lucky not to lose another guy in this. So after they lost some of their gear to being turned over, one of the men said, the nights were so many times longer than the days. There was no rest. Maybe you doze for a few minutes and then a wave would hit us and everyone would think this is the one that's going to turn us over. It rained every night they were on the rafts, which added to the misery of the men, of course. Captain Jones tried to catch rain in the canvas covers above the men, but the rough water made it impossible to catch more than a few drops. So frustrating. Yes. And then more information from Alicia's grandma. Whoever had loaded the life rafts into the airplane did not stock them fully with supplies. So they weren't even fully, I don't know, to code, whatever you want to call it. They didn't have everything they needed. And so they didn't have anything on the boats to gather water. That's why they were using the canvas. Oh, so frustrating. So that's just yeah, cutting corners really yeah. screws you over. And she said that two men who were responsible for this were later court-martialed. And so between the canvas, the only other way to catch water was with their hands. Not very convenient. Early the second night, they heard a beer... Early on the second night, they heard a B-29, but they could not see it. It flew directly over them and then turned away. Sergeant William Johnston tried to fire a flare, but it was wet, and so it only went up 50 to 75 feet. That's actually... Better than nothing, but... And they had a couple, so they kept trying. And one night, a B-17 search plane sighted the survivors in two rafts, bobbing in the water. So it comes upon them and drops the survivors a lifeboat by parachute. A big, heavy lifeboat. That's really cool. In one of these articles, one of the guys says that they thought it was about to take off their heads. (laughs) (laughs) The rescue plane crew said... That some of the survivors were so weakened that it took them about 45 minutes to transfer from the raft into the boat. That's crazy. But I guess with all that water and wind and not sleeping and not eating. Yes. Not drinking water. It makes sense. The B-17 then sent a radio call to the Canadian destroyer Haida, which made its way to where the 18 men were a spot which was 300 miles northeast of Bermuda. The rescue craft pilot, First Lieutenant Edward Lynch, said that 18 men were crowded into rafts intended only to carry six. So there are two rafts, nine men in a six-person raft. Okay. So they still were pretty packed. Yeah. They were all in good spirits after they were brought to warm hospital beds. 14 were able to walk out and four were taken out in stretchers. Sergeant Percy C. Alfred summed up his recollection of the ordeal and said it was three days of complete hell. That sounds pretty much like it. Back to some insight from Alicia's grandma. Bill did not remember getting off the airplane. He doesn't remember any of that. 
he hit his head during the crash and thinks that he may have been knocked out initially. After the rescue, Bill had salt pits. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's when the salt eats into your skin. Oh, that sounds terrible. She said you could put your finger in them. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, we have not come across that in any of these other stories. No, and I'm wondering if it's to do with the wind and maybe the cold. Yeah. Do you know, do you remember those salt ice cube challenges that people would do? No. Totally stupid. No, tell me about it. People did it when I was in high school. It's where you put salt on your skin and then you put an ice cube on top of it. And so the salt is kind of absorbed by your skin. It causes a burn. Oh, oh, so maybe you are right. It might have something to do with the cold. That's my best guess. Interesting. Just another stupid challenge, like eating a spoonful of cinnamon. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. It's stupid. (laughs) So besides the salt pits, he had cut his hand badly. And Alicia's grandma said that he could see the tendons and joints working where his skin should be. So I don't know where he cut his hand, but not so great. An interesting note that I saw in one of the newspaper articles, and it was just kind of glossed over, is that five other airmen died during the search for this plane crew. Oh, really? Who are also in their own B-29. That's crazy. And it's just like a footnote, like, hey, another plane crashed. By the way, five people died. It's fine. (laughs) We found these other 18. Wow. Yeah, so this B-29 crashed uh, in Tampa Bay, so they didn't get very far. Alicia's grandma also said that the men were lost for four to five days, according to Bill. Bill always said that it was four to five days, but the reports and what these newspapers are saying is 70 or 80 hours. I don't know. Well, after a head injury and the other thing is when you're sitting in that kind of situation, how do you even keep track of time? Exactly. Or how are other people keeping track of time? I guess... Yeah, if you don't definitively know what time and what day you went down or date. Yeah, I mean, I guess those people in Bermuda would have known when they radioed. I just don't know about the documentation back in these days because, like, they were talking about in this recording is that none of these men, none of their families knew that this was happening until after it had already taken place. After all of these days had passed and all this rescue work had been put in, they didn't find out that they're family members were lost at sea at all wow so different times entirely maybe they were just like let's just wait to see how this pans out before we freak everyone out yeah true another interesting thing that was not in the articles alicia's grandma said what's not advertised is the red cross brought them clothes and whatnot and they presented the captain with a bill the whole thing the red cross wanted money for everything they had given them Wow. In other words, they're trying to look good for the public eye, but then after everything was said and done, they're like, now give us money for the supplies. That's crazy. These guys didn't even have good clothes coming out of the ocean, you know? I wonder how the Red Cross feels about this now. We should ask for a statement. Yeah, excuse me. (laughs) I'd like to bring something up about uh, 1949. It's very important. (laughs) Yeah. Did they end up paying the Red Cross back? Oh, no, they didn't. Yeah, I figured as much. Yeah, the captain said, what are you talking about? I'm not going to give you any money. Everything I went on 
Everything I own went down with an airplane. <laughs> Another note is a lot of the stuff from the Red Cross says not to be resold. <laughs> so it's not supposed to be sold anyway. And listen, guys, if you're from the Red Cross, <laughs> just a we statement from me. This is just, you know, I'm parroting this back from Alicia's grandma. <laughs> so I'm not making any statements about what's true and what's not. But it's who interesting. Knows? Who knows? I wasn't there. <laughs> All these guys were taken back to California to a military base. Bill was already ready for retirement within two to three months of the incident. He was put in the post office for the last few months. And he was only 21? He was 20 oh, he at was the 20. time of the accident. He was the youngest in the entire crew. So he got a lot of publicity over it. He met his wife about a year later and got married in 1950. They had two children together. When he met his wife, he was still limping from the accident. And this is probably to do with the salt water. All these guys had really swollen legs mm -hmm. because of it. And some of these articles mentioned them not being able to take their shoes off with ease. Mm. Yikes. <laughs> and then they also mentioned that he would always have trouble with his hands. Just because of his, uh, his, his huge was, cut? Yes. Uh, his wife said that he refused surgery when that happened. Well, that's not a good idea. <laughs> for, sorry. For so, the record. Yeah, so that's probably why. And I saw an article that said Bill opened his own sporting goods store one year later in Ontario. Alicia's grandma said that he also worked as a police officer and then also for fish and game. And she kind of wrapped it up by saying he never talked about it. Every once in a while, he would tell someone about it, but it was very rare. And I think that makes it an interesting story, too, because Alicia said that he never told her the story. Wow. Alicia's mom was there. She said that he had never told her the story. He really didn't ever talk about it. So all these testaments from her grandma are like the last thing that he ever told somebody. Yeah, so a lot of these traumatic stories that probably happen to a lot of people, think about war stories or whatever, people just can't, it's too traumatic to talk about, and then the story just dies. Yeah. Well, and especially when you're in a crash where two people are immediately dead, you're not even in combat, but gosh, I can't even imagine. Well, in addition to the story, I just thought it was interesting how many B-29 crashes there were. I'm sure you've heard of B-29 crashes before. Yeah. I think of this and I'm like, that's a plane I don't want to be on. I just remember it from um, Unbroken. Yeah. Which someday we'll tell that story. But um, I remember them talking a lot about that, the author going into details about all of those crashes. Yeah, and you can't get a definitive number of how many crashes there were with the B-29 but I did look it up. It's just some history. Here's something from historynet.com. Official. Here's a direct quote from there. The grim joke among B-29 crewmen was that more of them were being killed by the makers of the B-29's big radical engines than by the Japanese. Only it wasn't a joke. 414 B-29s were lost bombing Japan. 147 of them to flak and Japanese fighters, 
267 engine fires, mechanical failures, takeoff crashes, and other operational losses. Do the math, and you'll see that for every B-29 loss to the enemy, almost two were lost to accidents and crashes. Yeah, I remember hearing something about stateside crashes versus in-war crashes, and the risk of dying in one was like 25% every time you went out. Something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it was, <laughs> high. It was high. It was. It's, it's not a plane that you should probably ever get in. Yeah, and in these newspapers from the 50s, if you just flip through some of them, there are other incidents of B-29 crashes. It wasn't just a standalone, like we found these guys in the ocean. Crazy. And part of the reason they were so dangerous is that they had the highest wing loading of any World War II airplane. It was 81 pounds per square foot. The bomber was so heavy that even the taxiing was a task. Turns needed to be made cautiously so they wouldn't roll, and the tires would stay on the wheels. And the B-29's brakes were so marginal that they'd overheat if a pilot taxied a bit too fast. And in addition, the min, uh, in addition, maximum ground running time was 20 minutes, after which the engines were too hot for takeoff. It's almost like it might as well not even be a plane. It probably should have been a boat. It was state-of-the-art at the time, but yeah. <laughs> Crazy. And the main concern is that it kept overheating the aircraft's four engines when they were trying to reach high altitudes. And I think it's just because, you know, they're so heavy. Anyway, the last B-29 squadron was retired in September of 1960. They stopped making them, I think, in the early 1950s. So, anyway. Thank goodness for that. I know. So, thanks, Alicia, for this interesting story. I hope I did it justice. It's just, there's a lot of information. And so, everyone, I was pulling notes from like a hundred different newspapers so hopefully it was cohesive well i guess we could ask her grandmother yeah maybe her grandma will come on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) thanks for tuning in this week stay alive until next week have a good one yeah bye bye